Welcome to this episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the current status of the opioid epidemic. I am joined by Dr. John Sprague, Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation eminent scholar at Bowling Green State University and the Director of Science and Research for the Ohio Attorney General. His research and teaching interests include the neurobiology of addiction and the pharmacology and toxicology of drugs of abuse. Dr. Sprague has over 100 peer-reviewed publications in these topics. I am pleased today to have Dr. John Sprague join us on Disrupt. John, welcome to the podcast. We appreciate you spending some time with us today. I appreciate the invitation to be here today, so thank you very much. Absolutely. So before we dive into our topic of interest, I would love if you could just share a little bit more about yourself, including how you ended up in the current roles that you serve within the state of Ohio and at Bowling Green State University. Yeah, sure. Um, Actually, I'm a pharmacist by training and uh, then went on and obtained a a PhD in pharmacology and toxicology from Purdue University. And that's really where I started my focus and my research in the area of substance use disorder in general, looking mainly at the toxicities associated with the club drug ecstasy. Um, And that's just always been a a focus of my research over the last nearly 30 years now, which is is hard to believe. Um, But we were looking specifically at at how ecstasy uh, led to a specific form of neurotoxicity known as serotonergic neurotoxicity. So that's where it all started. And that research over the years has actually led to uh, you know, my focus in, in on uh, substance use disorder. And it's just grown and expanded to the opioid uh, epidemic that we currently have here in, in the country, you know, here in the United States, namely here in Ohio. So my role in uh, substance use disorder research in general, even as holding other positions from, a, uh, from a academic positions to, from uh, assistant professor to a dean's position, I continued to do research in this area. Then in 2014, when then Attorney General Mike DeWine uh, started the uh, Forensic Science Center at Bowling Green State University, um, he brought me on board to assist uh, with the development of forensic science programs at BGSU. And part of that focus, though, uh, and the reason I was brought in was because of the work we'd done with all the synthetic drugs that we we were seeing back in 2010. And believe it or not, those first batch of synthetic drugs, bath salts as they were, um, were all analogs of the club drug ecstasy. And uh, it just so it just an expansion of what I've been doing with ecstasy led to the roles that I've been in. When Dave Yost then was elected Attorney General uh, back in 2019, um, he asked me if I would join and lead the uh, research efforts for the Attorney General's office, specifically in the area of opioid. Uh, in, in the area of opioids in general. That's kind of how I got here. That's great. And my understanding is that you've also been instrumental in writing some of the synthetic drug laws for the state of Ohio. Is that correct? What, what's that look like? Yeah, that's true. Um, we actually modified, we were actually looking at the laws that were actually put back in the 80s. They were called the Analog Acts. And the DEA had this Analog Act that required chemists to look at a structure and determine structural similarity based on chemistry. Uh, and the issue that we saw with the synthetic drugs is that a pure chemist doesn't take into consideration the pharmacology, meaning 
that an ester and a ketone are going to function the same way from a drug receptor interaction. Um, and so we modified the law to uh, include the pharmacology. It's actually known as the Pharmacophore Act. Um, and that we, we put in place back in, I believe, about 2014. And that was specifically for the synthetic forms of cathinones, the uh, bath salts. And then that was expanded to the spices, which is a synthetic cannabinoids, which then in 2016 it was expanded to the fentanyls, uh, which we'll talk about. Till this last year, we expanded it to the synthetic forms of benzodiazepines. And so what you see is this expansion of, of, of all these different synthetic drugs that, are, that keep continuing to appear um, on, on, you know, on the street. And so the, those laws were put into place based on the prior research that I had with ecstasy, but it just grew and grew that it just can continue to incorpor incorporate all these new drugs that we were seeing. Okay, so with that groundwork laid, let's dive into the specific topic of opioids. So if you could give us a 30,000-foot view picture of the opioid epidemic, what it is and how we got to where we are today, how would you describe that, John? Yeah, actually, you know, the, the, the CDC, the, the Center for Disease Control, actually uh, describes the epidemic in a way that's described in three waves. That first wave actually began in the 1990s uh, with prescription opioids contributing to the majority overdose deaths. And so the, the prescription opioid problem, and if you follow anything in the news anymore, it it's really focuses on uh, what we saw happen with big pharma, uh, specifically uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, where uh, they were touting these, these, these opioids as not being addictive. Um, and that contributed to that first wave where the overdoses were uh, really contributed to uh, prescription drugs. But what we saw then is a second wave that began in about 2010, where they switched from prescription opioids to heroin, uh, where heroin was producing the largest percentage of, of overdoses in general. And then that was followed by what was called uh, the third wave, which is about 2013 is when we saw the switch to clandestinely produced fentanyl and synthetic forms of fentanyl. As we will talk here in a little bit with what we're seeing right now as a result of COVID-19, and we're gonna we'll, we'll maybe talk about it, is that there's now a, a, a trend and a, a new wave of overdoses that have been associated with COVID-19. So. CDC looks at three waves, the first one opioid uh, prescriptions, followed by heroin, followed by fentanyl. Now it looks like that we may be entering a fourth wave that, that, that's actually been induced by the COVID-19 pandemic. So you mentioned the synthetic fentanyl derivatives. Maybe for our listeners, can you explain why those have been um, so concerning recently in terms of potency and how they're being used, where they're showing up? What, what's the biggest concern with those fentanyl derivatives? You know, the fentanyl derivatives, and I try to, when I talk to folks about the opioid epidemic in general, I try to really emphasize the point that fentanyl is not fentanyl is not fentanyl. So when we read in the paper that fentanyl overdoses occurred and they'll, they'll say it's a synthetic form of fentanyl here within the Bureau of Criminal Investigation uh, that here in Ohio, we've seen over 19 different forms of fentanyl. What does that mean? The core structure of fentanyl may be there, 
But what we're seeing is a chemistry game that's being played by these clandestine laboratories. Well, they'll go in and make a slight chemical modification to the structure um, in order to bypass and skirt the laws where they're not selling or distributing anything that's illegal. And in these cases, it's a, maybe a simple addition of a, something like a chloral group or a floral group. And what that means is that they add these groups, these chemical structures onto the molecule that if you with a background in toxicology, as soon as I see halogens like fluorines and chlorines being added, the first thing that goes through my mind is, boy, that's going to enter the brain very quickly and lead to enhanced toxicities. And that's the problem we see with these synthetic forms of fentanyl. With 19 different forms that are out there, there've been no clinical trials to look at safety and efficacy of these, of these molecules. And as a result, what we don't know is their toxicities. Um, and so people are taking these compounds that have had no testing done on them and as a result, you, we're seeing these overdoses that we see as a result of them. So fentanyl is not fentanyl. Uh, I mean, there's 19 different forms of fentanyl that are out there. When we think about the fentanyl derivatives and th the current role they play in, of course, the opioid crisis, how is the state of Ohio doing in general in combating this opioid crisis? And how, does, how do we compare to other states and maybe even um, uh, other counties within the state? How does that vary according to geography? Yeah. Um, when you look at Ohio in general, Ohio has the second highest drug overdose rate in the United States, second to West Virginia. Um, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the opioid overdose rate in Ohio is the highest we'd ever seen was in 2017. In that year, we saw over 4,000 opioid overdose deaths in the state of Ohio. Um, and there's been some studies that have been done here in the state that looked at what's the impact of the opioid overdose deaths on years of life lost in Ohio. And we lost over a million years of life uh, in two, it, since the start of the opioid epidemic in the state of Ohio. So um, we're second overall in overdose rate uh, of overdose uh, doses in the country. But when you look at county-wise uh, in, in Ohio, when we think of the original onset of the opioid epidemic, we typically lean towards areas like Montgomery County, uh, you know, down by Dayton and those types of areas uh, was where we initially saw the, the increased rate. It got a lot of attention on TV, 60 Minutes did specials on this. Um, and, and really the Montgomery County area was really key to that, what's called the farm to arm supply chain. And that was the farm to arm supply chain is drugs being smuggled, smuggled into the United States, they ended up in the Dayton area because of the access to I-70 and I-75. So they could go east, west, north, south uh, from a distribution perspective. But what we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic is a shift in the counties that are most affected by it. Um, when I say that, what we see now that, that during quarter two of 2020, quarter two would be right after we shut down uh, as a state. So March of, of 2020 is when, you know, the state shut down. Um, quarter two, when we look at overdose rates, the highest rate that uh, county that we saw overdoses in was Scioto County, down in the southern part of the state of, of Ohio, followed by Fayette County, which is also right down there. But then finally, it was it's followed by Franklin County, which is, you know, Columbus area. So the top three 
where Scioto, Fayette, and Franklin counties, and those counties uh, were not in the top three previously uh, until the COVID-19 pandemic. We've actually done an analysis uh, of statewide looking county by county and rank ordered the counties uh, in general uh, as to the highest overdose rates. When you say rate, you're looking at deaths per population of 100,000. So a rate is 100 per 100,000. Um, but yeah, that's what we're seeing is big portion of the southern part of the state of Ohio, the Appalachian region of the state is where the highest rates are right at this moment. So what other factors do you think play into these overdose rates and it's particularly overdose related deaths? Um, you've mentioned the importance of geography and even which highways are located in strategic places. What other things are you seeing in your own work? You know, the big thing right now is that during the, uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, our attention shifted, right? As a, as a, not only as a state, but as a country, our attention shifted away from the opioid epidemic to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and when we shifted our attention, what happened is that there was a disruption in the accessibility that patients with substance use disorder may have had for treatment, uh, you know, accessing treatment. There's actually a study that was done by the Addiction Policy Forum that showed that 34% of, 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 of patients with SUD could not actually access their treatment services. Another, about 15% couldn't even obtain uh, naloxone uh, during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Naloxone is the drug, obviously, that's used to reverse an overdose uh, from these agents. So. COVID-19 really disrupted the ability of, of patients to obtain the services that they needed to protect themselves. But then furthermore, uh, you couple it with social isolation, depression, all leading or contributing to uh, the, the use of those opioids. So those all played a key role in, 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 that, in the change that we saw for, from previous years. So you mentioned this whole idea that our attention was diverted with the pandemic. Uh, what I assume you're saying is a lot of away from the opioid epidemic. So do you think that we have been, um, if you will, the victims of problem shift, where one problem has just replaced another in our conscience, in our psyche, in our media attention? And do you feel like that's affected public perception of the opioid epidemic? Essentially, has it become a forgotten problem over the last year? Um, I think that it was during during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially during the shutdown phases. That there, you saw no discussion of what was happening, you know, with the opioid crisis during that time frame. Um, and so as a result, it was shifted. But now I'm starting to see a shift back because there's a lot of media attention that, uh-oh, during the COVID-19 shutdown, we reached a new peak in overdose deaths. In fact, when you look at here in the state of Ohio, 2017 was the original peak uh, that, we, that we had from uh, opioid overdoses. In 2017, that was really that where we saw this peak in a shift to synthetic forms of fentanyl. And at that time, we had a, about a, about a, about a 10.8 rate per 100,000 deaths from opioid overdose. That was the peak of the, since 2010. But during quarter two of 2020, 
that peak had now been equaled and slightly surpassed at over 11 uh, deaths per 100,000 in the state of Ohio. So during COVID-19, we saw this peak and in increased deaths in general. And so now, now that we're hopefully in the, that we're starting to drive away from the COVID-19 pandemic, we're starting to see an increase in discussion again about where are we? Where, what has happened with the opioid epidemic? That's starting to bubble up and get more attention yet again. Okay, so to further contextualize this, have we seen these same trends across the United States, or is this simply something that you've observed here in Ohio? Um, you know, we've been monitoring very closely here in the state of Ohio. That's part of what what I do with the, the Attorney General's office, um, and I have a whole team that helps me with this. But uh, what we see in Ohio is happening across the United States. It's not isolated to just Ohio. It's it's This is a national problem right now. So maybe you could talk us through some of what Ohio's plan is to combat the opioid epidemic, both now and into the future. What are some of those things that have been done and that are currently ongoing? Yeah, so part of, you know, part of my role within the Attorney General's office, we focus our attention on prevention and education, not so much on the, the treatment side, uh, but we're, because that's actually covered mainly from the governor's office out with Recovery Ohio. Uh, so we're focusing on prevention and education. Um, I have the uh, part of my responsibility is I chair a, a statewide committee known as SCOPE. And SCOPE stands for um, the Scientific Committee on Opioid Prevention and Education. And this is a group of scientists from all over the state and uh, all academic scientists that uh, actually met on a regular basis and we reviewed the literature and we looked for novel approaches to addressing uh, prevention uh, and educational needs um, from an opioid perspective. So part of what we've looked at is, is after reviewing the literature, we targeted three primary areas. Uh, plus then we have one major study that's going on at the same time. So the, the target areas included healthcare education in general. And we actually surveyed all of the healthcare programs in the state of Ohio that included medicine, physical therapy, PA programs, pharmacy programs, nursing programs, uh, dentistry programs, optometry programs, anyone that would, could be involved in that uh, prescribing of opioids, dispensing of opioids, uh, pain management. And what we found from that survey is a lack of consistency of any type when it comes to substance use disorder, uh, teaching students uh, on what is substance use disorder, what is opioid use disorder, what are uh, factors that may contribute to the development of, uh, of opioid use disorder. For example, one of our target areas was adverse childhood experiences um, and how they have actually been linked to the development of, uh, of opioid use disorder. And do our healthcare professionals screened or are taught how to screen for uh, adverse childhood events. And guess what? The percentage was extremely low. And as a result of that survey, uh, uh, we formed a, a network of, of faculty members from across the state and from all these healthcare programs. And we're developing a, a, a symposium that's designed to be interprofessional and bring healthcare professionals together to discuss these areas that we identified as not being addressed when it comes from a 
uh, opioid use disorder, substance use disorder focus. So we're bringing the teams together to address those weaknesses. So that was their educational piece. Second piece was really looking at um, drug disposal and proper storage. We see a lot of attention given to uh, drug disposal. If you go to most pharmacies today, uh, you go in and they'll have a, a disposal box for uh, your prescription drugs. And the DEA holds uh, drug take back days. Well, the DEA only holds two a year. One thing that we're doing for the Attorney General's office, we're going to supplement uh, the DEA truck, their drug take back days to having Attorney General uh, drop off days where we are going to add two more of these events each year onto what's done by the DEA. And we're going to specifically target the top three counties in Ohio for those events initially. Uh, those Scioto County, Fayette County, Franklin County. And we're going to extend that out as we go on and we learn. We're partnering with the DEA to perform these drug, uh, these drug drop-off days, uh, but we're starting with what the data shows us. Where do we need to focus our attention? And that's where we're going to go to first and foremost. Um, the other piece, though, that we don't see a lot of discussion about, and this is something I think we want to have a media campaign on. This is the type of thing that those listening today need to get out there and, 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 and actually help us uh, pass this word, is proper storage. Um, not long ago, in fact, just a few weeks ago, I was actually getting my hair cut. I went and got my hair cut, and the beautician was cut and asked me what I did, and I started telling her, and she shared with me that her brother actually had has a, an opioid use disorder and is in treatment right now. And his profession was one that allowed him in and out of people's homes uh, based on his what his job was. And he was obtaining his opioids from when he went into somebody's house. Um, and so it was. it's all about storage. How do you store these opioids correctly? How do you keep them out of reach of folks? What do you do with them when you're done? And, and so we're gonna have a campaign with uh, focusing on proper storage uh, of, of prescription drugs in general. Because I think we all have a tendency to leave them on the counter, leave them someplace that's handy for us, but you don't think about maybe your grandchildren coming in your house or uh, you know somebody just coming in to uh, fix a sink or something. You just have to make sure that you're storing drugs correctly and appropriately, and then you don't hold on to them. With pain meds, what you hear a lot of times is somebody gets some pain meds to have a tooth from a tooth extraction. They'll say, well, I didn't use them, but I held on to them in case I needed the medicines later, or the, and then they share them with somebody else. Those are all things that we do not want to do. You, we do not want to be contributing to the development of the future, of future uh, opioid users by sharing our meds and holding on to our meds and those types of things. So. Part of it's going to be proper storage also. That's, that's the second arm. The third arm is probably going to be the most interesting, I think, to folks, because it's something that I found extremely interesting, and it's a behavioral economics approach. Um, and behavioral economics um, is really a fascinating science to me. If you've read the book Freakonomics, it looks at how uh, uh, people make decisions and how to improve decision-making. And we're, part, we're partnering with some uh, behavioral economists uh, from the University of Cincinnati uh, to look at how do we implement behavioral economic approaches to uh, treating the, the uh, uh, preventing opioid epidemics. 
There's actually been studies from U the UK that uh, were done back in 2010, where they actually uh, took over 2,000 uh, 13 to 16 year olds and they gave them two 90 minute sessions where they used be cognitive behavioral interventions, not uh, using a DARE program or anything like that, but was basically looking at how do we teach these 13 to 16 year olds to make better decisions in life? You don't need, they don't even talk about drugs, but then they looked at how these two 90 minute sessions that they had with these 13 and 16 year olds, and they followed their, the, these, 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 these young adults, they followed them and said how, and they surveyed how often they use drugs after that. Two years after these uh, behavioral economic approaches, they still had a lower, a much lower use of drugs than the other groups. So we're working with behavioral economists to uh, pilot a few studies at uh, targeting those 13 to 16 year olds on better decision making uh, and, and seeing to see how that might work. Um, and then finally, I know this is a long-winded answer, uh, but part of the committee that I oversee, uh, we have a study that's going on statewide uh, with, the, uh, with, with the emergency departments at the University of Cincinnati and at the Ohio State University. Um, and we're screening patients for uh, some of the genes and genetics that may predispose somebody to um, uh, opioid use disorder, and we're going to hopefully develop, be able to develop uh, algorithms that allow us to risk stratify patients as high, medium, or low risk for developing uh, opioid use disorder. And so we're in the middle of that study. So those are the types of things that that, uh, that 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 I have the opportunity to work on at the state level. Sorry for the long-winded answer there, Justin. No, that's fantastic. A ton of great information there. Um, a couple things strike me just as you're talking. The first is the whole idea of keeping medications even after our own pain has, has ceased. It just seems to me that we are conditioned to expect pain as part of the human experience. And to that end, I can see where a, a lot of people would say, you know what, I'm going to hold these for a rainy day. What if I have pain again? I've seen over the, the course of my years that pain's going to come back, right? Whether it's a different right. type or the same type. Um, I, I, I just wonder, are there ways um, to help us mentally or um, even emotionally grapple with those things um, and really plan better to address them in ways that sometimes are non-pharmacologic, right? It's easy to go and, and pop a pill for some physiologic pain, or maybe it's pain manifesting as uh, physiologic pain, but it's something else causing it. I, I think there's a lot of promise on that, so I'm excited to hear about your work there. Um, I, I love absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, as you say, yeah, you know, there are, there are other ways to manage pain besides opioids. Now, opioids are extremely effective at managing pain, and I'm not telling folks that, if you have pain and, you're, and, and you've been given an opioid to, to manage that pain, I'm not saying stop it. That's the last thing you want to do uh, is just stop cold turkey. Um, but as we look at as pain management strategies, you know, there are alternatives, as you said, physical therapy. There's some physical therapy type things that can be done to manage pain. You don't always have to start with an opioid to manage pain. So, yeah, there are alternatives to it by, that, that can be considered but again, we need to make sure that we're educating our healthcare professionals to, to understand and know the options that they have before going right to the opioid. The opioid might be the quickest and easiest because you just write it and go. 
but there are alternatives that we need to make sure that we're all considering uh, as we go forward. Yeah, that's excellent. I'd love to ask a little bit more about this behavioral economics approach. So essentially, I think of behavioral economics as incentivizing better decisions. And there are different ways that that can be done. What are some of those incentives that have been used um, in studies related to opioids and pain management that you've seen out there? Yeah, from a, 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 an opioid and pain management perspective, there's not a whole lot. Um, and that's, that's why we are targeting that, you know, th- those types of, uh, of features. When you look at behavioral economics and, and what it does, it studies how people make decisions by allocating scarce resources, for example, money, effort, time. Um, and so, you know, part of it is, is, is then, to, then how do you incentivize, maybe by offering some type of cash reward um, or providing time, those types of things to the to, to folks. Um, and then behavioral economics then can use a knowledge-based program where you just build in behavioral economic components uh, that really uh, that really provide what are known as behavioral nudges. I'm by no means a behavioral economist, so uh, I, I have one on my team who really uh, you know looks at behavioral nudges. Um, and they use what's called hyperbolic discounting, which refers to the tendency for people to increasingly choose a smaller sooner reward over a larger later reward as the delay occurs sooner rather than later in time. So they really are looking at people will, will increasingly choose smaller sooner rewards than waiting for a larger reward reward down, uh, down the line. There's a famous, I think it was called the marshmallow test where they gave kids marshmallows. They put marshmallows in a room um, and told them not to eat it. If they wouldn't eat it while they left them, while they left them in the room, they could have a larger treat and reward later. Um, but children notoriously would eat the marshmallows that were left in the room instead of holding it. So that's kind of the knowledge-based program that uses behavioral nudges. Whereas cognitive uh, behavioral training um, is just a little different where they, they have three main components that in, include a, you know, psychoeducation piece, behavioral coping training skills, cognitive po- coping training skills. Those are the types of things that they do with those, but there has not been a whole lot done in the opioid area. And that's why we are going to do that. That's great. I'm excited to see where a lot of that work heads and we appreciate you sharing too. about it. Yep. Me too. We lost a little momentum uh, when we started this program uh, due to COVID. Uh, we were in the middle of getting it up and running, schools shut down. Uh, so literally this summer, we are back up and trying to get it up and running again. All right. So I want to shift our focus a bit, mostly because a lot of our listeners are connected with the profession of pharmacy. So, John, I would love to hear your thoughts on what the pharmacy profession can and should be doing to end opioid abuse and misuse? You know, I think first and foremost um, is, is counseling. It's number one for us. We, we need to make sure we take the time, not with just opioids, but with all uh, of of the drugs that we may uh, be providing our patients that may have abuse potential. We need to counsel them on the potential for abuse and what does that mean and, and why is it important to use the drug uh, appropriately. Uh, secondly, from a counseling perspective, we need to talk about proper storage and actually educate 
Uh, our patients how best to store their medications in general, but very importantly for those with abuse potential. Um, there have been studies that have actually shown that those that are that are addicted to things like heroin uh, or synthetic forms of fentanyl, unfortunately, got their first hit or their first exposure because of somebody else's opioid prescription. So storage counseling becomes very important. Uh, and then disposal. How do we dispose of these things correctly? I, you know, I, this is going to show my age. I am a pharmacist myself, but I remember in the old days, it would be that you flush it down the toilet or you uh, use kitty litter uh, or you used uh, coffee grounds. Um, and so what's become very uh, easy for me to see now, because I'm working with the Bureau of Crime Investigation, those are, those don't do anything to uh, somebody from using uh, or obtaining their opioid uh, for abuse. For example, uh, putting it in kitty litter, you can pull it right out of the kitty litter within, uh, you know, weeks after it's been put in kitty litter. Same thing with, um, same thing with um, uh, the, the, the old uh, coffee grounds. You can be pulled right out of these things. Um, and you think, well, who's going to do that? And an example I like to use there is what we've seen with methamphetamine lately. So I'm not trying to change the topic, but methamphetamine, methamphetamine right now is the number one drug we're seeing on the street here in Ohio. And the methamphetamine that we're seeing is much more pure and much more uh, clear than, I mean, when I say clear, I mean, without uh, other uh, contaminants within it than we've ever seen. What we're seeing is that some folks are actually collecting their urine after they've taken meth and crystallizing it, resuspending it, and reusing it. Um, so if you don't think they're going to pull it out of your 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 garbage, your kitty litter, I've also heard people actually put it in in uh, in dog poop. Uh, those things are not going to deter somebody from actually obtaining their opioids. So it, it really is about really let's 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 use these drug take back days and and uh, and utilize them in those fashions. Have you done any work or seen much about the pharmacist's role in screening for opioid misuse? Is that an opportunity maybe for pharmacists to step in as well? More um, maybe I'm on the prescription. I've not seen a lot of work in that area, but I think it is an area for us because we're the we're front line in, in making sure one, when a person obtains an opioid, we know their drug history and their drug patterns better than anyone because we have that access to that information. Um, I think it is it is an area for us as uh, healthcare professionals to step in and help. Um, I think the big, the big one too in the future is going to be hopefully what we find uh, from our pharmacogenomics study and how do you imp implement pharmacogenomics into this uh, care of these patients that may be having their pain managed. Um, and so I think there's going to be a piece there. Pharmacogenomics, as we know, has been slow on the uptake, but now we're starting to see it more and more. Um, and I think uh, with what we're trying to do here in the city of Ohio is, is implement that further. So I think it could be useful. Shifting more towards the patient or family perspective, what precautions can a patient take to prevent opioid um, addiction in their own household? Um, well, one, proper storage uh, and disposal. You know, I just kind of, I'm beating on that drum, but, uh, you know, I want people to walk away with that. But then I also think need to we need to look at things like social isolation and depression, um, and it may be family members, it may be an elderly person, 
uh, in your family that's, that doesn't have somebody seeing them every single day, they may be by themselves. Well, we need to take the time to actually uh, see them, make sure they're doing okay, uh, and we're following up with them. Depression's the same thing. Watch for those things in your family uh, to, you know, to help those. And then to me, get involved in, 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 in social type programs that may help target and help these folks. For example, get involved in your church. What is your church doing uh, that, that may be helpful to uh, those with, with, with substance use disorder in general? Um, and, and, and community events that may be involved. It's, 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 this is actually a team effort that we all need to be active in. So if it's someone in your family that you're worried about, we need to work with them uh, to, to make sure they're doing okay. Social isolation is the one that concerns me the most just because of what we saw what happened during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Are there other risk factors? You, you've given us a, a few here that we should be looking out for in those around us. Um, anything else that, that strikes important to talk about here? You know, I think the thing that really that, that strikes me here is what we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic is that this still tends to be a predominantly white male 18 to 44 issue, meaning it's the group that's hardest hit by the uh, opioid epidemic. They typically uh, they, they typically tend to be in the low income group. It's not saying they all are, but that's just as a, what we've seen from a demographic perspective. So it's something that we need to keep in mind. Who is susceptible? Low income white males, 18 to 44. The one thing that happened that started to happen since 2018. So when you look at the, the, the opioid epidemic pattern since 2010, remember I talked about those three waves that we were in. 2017 was the peak. And then we really put on a full court press, not only as a state, but as a nation to start combating this, these synthetic forms of fentanyl um, and, and trying to uh, do some harm reduction type steps. And we saw a reduction in the number of opioid overdose numbers in the state of Ohio between 2017 and 2018. And then it slowly started to go up again uh, till 2020, and then 2020, it skyrocketed. That's during during the pandemic shutdown. It skyrocketed, and again, it was males, uh, 18 to white males, 18 to 44, low income group. But we also saw that uh, a trend in the black population that there was this trend in the upward rate of overdose in the black population. Um, and so, what we need to really figure out is 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 where was that occurring in the black population? But the black population is not devoid of an opioid overdose problem. It affects the, the black population, um, but now at a rate that's higher than uh, we've seen in any of the other groups. It's really clear that the opioid epidemic does not discriminate, right? There are unseen um, victims, if you will, and really all walks of life. Um, I even think back to my own experience in, in children. Um, neonatal abstinence syndrome is not just uh, an issue with opioids. There can be other things as well, but um, this impacts even um, those who are, are newly born. Um, so it's interesting that you point out that really anyone and everyone is impacted at some level. Oh, absolutely. That is the case. I think the one thing that I've found very interesting now, 
opioid use disorder is multifactorial. Uh, it, it involves things like social isolation and depression. Um, the other thing, though, that, that when you look at the, the social economics of those that are impacted by uh, opioid use disorder, they tend to be in that low-income group. And there's some studies that were done uh, back in the mid-90s that looked at what's called the check effect. And they were looking at when government-assisted payment programs, when people were paid, did that have an impact on overdose? Um, and so the check effect was actually originally studied in Vancouver. Um, and it showed that at the first of the month, within two or three days of when, uh, you know, uh, state uh, payment assessment programs were, the payments were made, there was a spike in overdose rates. The one thing that we've looked at, and if you look in the lay literature uh, right now, is was there an impact? Did the, uh, uh, you know, the stimulus, quote-unquote stimulus checks, have an impact on opioid overdose rates? We've examined that uh, fairly closely. In week 17 of, of 2020 is where we saw uh, the, high, the change point. We did what's called a change point analysis uh, from every week from 2018 through uh, through August of 2020. And what we saw is week 17 of 2020 was the change point, meaning end of April um, is when we saw this biggest spike in overdoses uh, in the state of Ohio. Um, it happens to be the same week that stimulus checks came out. We can't say it's causal by any means. But if you talk to law enforcement, uh, EMTs in general, they all say the same thing is that they, they saw, saw that when stimulus checks came out, there was this bump in the number of opioid overdoses. But we have to be careful not to say it's causal, so I'm not going to say that, but pretty coincidental that the two weeks line up with one another. Absolutely. That, that's a fascinating observation and something that I really do think we need to continue to watch for um, moving into the future. Yeah, I, you know, I think from a policy perspective, you know, now that, now that I – that I work within the, the state government as part of my job, we have to look at when policy may have those unhidden outcomes, you know, those hidden outcomes that we didn't think about at the time. But the check effect has been known since the 90s. Um, um, and, and so to me, it's something that we, like you said, we need to continue to monitor this because each time a stimulus check comes out, is it going to have an impact? And I think we just have to continue to watch and see where this ends up taking us as, as we move on into the future. So, John, if one wanted to learn more about the current status of the opioid epidemic, what are some resources that you would suggest? Well, the, not trying to be self-serving, but um, part of the Ohio, Ohio Attorney General's office, we actually developed a, a page uh, from our scope committee, that scientific committee on opioid prevention education. If you go to the ohioattorneygeneral.gov forward slash scope, we do have a lot of information out there for patients, healthcare providers, and those types of things. So that's one source that's out there. The CDC uh, also has an opioid overdose and epidemic uh, webpage. So the CDC is a good source. Uh, and then finally, the National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, has some really good information also that's out there. I'm sure there's plenty of others. Recovery Ohio uh, would have a site, but those are the ones that I would typically recommend uh, that people take a look at. Great. Appreciate those suggestions. I know that 
one thing we haven't talked much about is the availability of naloxone. You, you've mentioned it briefly, but I would love to hear a little bit more about um, your opinion on the importance of naloxone and having that in the hands of uh, people like law enforcement, healthcare providers, and even the lay public. Is, is that a key strategy in helping to prevent um, opioid overdose deaths? Um, yeah, I mean, having the ability to reverse the uh, opioid effects is, is, is extremely helpful, right? If, you, if somebody comes upon somebody that uh, has the uh, pinpoint pupils, respiratory depression, the foam cone, as it's called, we're foaming at the nose and the mouth, um, you know, naloxone is, is an effective way to reverse it. So naloxone um, has been shown to save lives. So I think it's a, it's, it's a good idea in general. Okay, my last question for you is uh, simply, how can others, um, non-healthcare providers in particular, get involved in combating the opioid epidemic? You've given us a ton of great information. How do we um, distill that down to non-healthcare providers? What can we all be doing as citizens to fight this? You know, I think uh, you know, we've all heard the phrase, it takes a village, um, and we need to all work together to, to provide that educational piece. So learn as much as you can uh, take care of, of folks that, that you may have concerns about from uh, not only a substance use disorder, but a social isolation uh, perspective. Um, but to me, it's, it's all work together. Uh, get out there and go to those web pages, talk to people, learn as much as you can to help one another. Um, so those are the types of things I think that we need to do. Let's be a village, work together on this. Great. Any last comments, last words you want to leave everyone with, John? Um, you know, is, is, is I'm going to part with the, 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 the drum I've been beating here since the very beginning. Let's make sure that we dispose of our, our prescription drugs appropriately, use drug take-back days, and then finally, uh, make be careful how you store your drugs. Keep them out of reach. Make them not easy to be seen for uh uh, for anyone that may walk into your house. That's a, that's a big point for me right now. Great. Well, John, it's always a privilege to chat with you. You always bring incredible insights, including to this important topic, particularly to us here in the state of Ohio. So we're incredibly appreciative of your time and talking with us today. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I hope that uh, I've, I've actually triggered those that have interest to learn more to go dig and learn more. Because like I said, let's all work together to combat this. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupt, a podcast from the Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share the podcast with others. For more information on the Cedarville University School of Pharmacy and Center for Pharmacy Innovation, visit www.cedarville.edu slash pharmacy. Thanks for listening.